0: Hello everyone and thank you for joining today's webinar about the five key skills every CEO needs to master. In the spirit of reconciliation, ANZ acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Before we start, I need to let you know that this session is being recorded so that it can be shared with those who are not able to join. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, due to tech issues, I am unable to be with you on screen today. However, hopefully you will be able to see all of our panelists before you. My name is Laura Woods, and I'm ANZ Business Banking Regional Executive for Northwest Victoria. It is my absolute privilege to host today's session and it is so very special to me that we have an all-female panel today. I have been a banker at ANZ for close to nine years now and during this time I have worked with numerous retail, commercial and agribusinesses across a range of industries and I've had the great privilege of helping them to start, run, grow and transition their businesses. As Australia faces an increasingly competitive global market, it is essential that we focus on helping communities to thrive and to be able to drive economic growth. And supporting business owners to unlock their potential growth is something ANZ is committed to. ANZ's partnership with the University of SA's Australian Centre for Business Growth is central to achieving this. Together we strive to provide business owners with a range of supports to help businesses overcome barriers to growth. Since 2014, we have collaborated to deliver business growth seminars, CEO clinics, and a nine-month business growth program, supporting hundreds of business owners to grow their businesses. Among the many insights gleaned over the last six years, one interesting stat is that there has been an increasing number of female-led and owned businesses participating in the growth program. That is, women in charge and taking charge of their businesses learning, growing, and adapting their businesses to unlock their growth potential through the ANZ Business Growth Program. While I'm delighted to host today's all-female panel discussion, I'd like to point out that the discussion about the five key skills every CEO needs to master is relevant to any business owner, regardless of their gender. Our guest includes two of our Business Growth Program alumni who have mastered the five key skills we will discuss today and have made a genuine and lasting impact on their company's financial performance. Today, we welcome Gail Gardner, co-CEO of Energetics, designers, manufacturers and retailers of Australian-made dancewear, dance shoes and activewear for kids and adults based in Victoria. And Alison Taylor, former general manager of Pump and Seal, a WA-based specialist supplier of process pumps, pumping systems and sealing solutions for industrial applications. I would also like to welcome Dr. Jana Matthews, who is an international expert on entrepreneurial leadership and business growth, and will chair today's panel discussion. Jana is a professor and director of the Australian Centre for Business Growth at the University of South Australia. She holds the ANZ Chair in Business Growth at UniSA and directs the ANZ Business Growth Program. Throughout her career, Jana has worked with hundreds of CEOs and leadership teams all over the world, as well as Australia. She's the founding director of the Australian Centre for Business Growth. Welcome ladies, and thank you all for joining us today. So Jenna, just to kick things off, what are the five key skills every CEO needs to master and why are they so important?
1: Thanks, Laura. Indeed, there are five questions. And as you said earlier, these are questions every CEO, we're not just talking about female CEOs, need to be asking and able to answer so at the center for business growth the australian center for business growth we've worked with over 1200 companies in australia and over 250 have come to the intensive growth program that both gail's company and allison's company came to and in that we talk a lot about what is it that you need to do in order to understand how to grow what do you need to do when why and in what order and although the companies are from 17 different industries plus other, they all have some things in common and they all have issues. And how do I say, um, CEO learnings that they all need to have. And so Gail was in our second cohort of companies to come through on the ANZ program. And she is uh, co-CEO with other founders of the company. And it was an absolute joy to have her and to hear what their plans were and where they were going. And so I'm gonna ask her to talk a little bit about etigenics. And then I'm gonna ask Allison Taylor, who's from the opposite end of the country in Perth, who uh, with her husband and another partner took on pump and seal. And she was in the finance area, but then moved into the CEO role when it was very clear that those were the skills that she had And her husband, who really loved to sell, was more than happy to have her take on that role. And so the journey that they took in an entirely different industry uh, at a different stage of growth with a different ending. So first of all, I'm going to ask them to talk a little bit about their history and their companies. And then Laura will jump into those questions. So Gail, when you came in our second, well, you came to the clinic and I was so impressed with the questions that you had, the answers that you gave as we worked through actually some of these questions in the clinic. And then you said, I'd really like to come to the program, but I'm not sure whether I can get my my co-CEOs to come. I went, co-CEOs? Don't tell me you have co-CEOs. Surely one of you. Well, what, seven years later, you still have co-CEOs, right? We do, Yeah. (laughs) uh, Talk about what what you do and um, how you divide up the responsibilities. Um, Well, there's three, three of us.
2: Um, We all have our own specialised area, and most people don't think it actually works, but it really does work. So we all have our specialised area, and I think that's why it does work. So I do the finance, HR, and the retail side of the business. Then Linda, she does the marketing and the design, and then we have Karen who does production and ordering. Throughout the course, we've we've been established since 1988, and through the course of our history, sometimes our roles have changed and We've helped out where we needed to be, and we have diversified ourselves. But generally, that is the role that we we tend to take.
1: Okay, so step back. You started Edogenics. What you all were dancers yourselves, and you just Correct. couldn't find the well fit. I mean, how did this start? Uh, we
2: started in this little retail store um, back in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and. Being dancers, there was nothing on this side. So we always had to travel into the city. and It was a huge excursion, especially back then. Um, so me and all my wisdom thought, hey, why not? Let's just open a dance store on this side of town. And it just happened. Well, it didn't just happen. It was a lot of work, um, even trying to get finance back then, especially being a young female person going into um, their own business. I was only 21 at, the, at that time. And even though I had my business plan and everything, it took a lot of convincing to the banks to actually lend me some money for my venture. And that's how it started. Then um, eventually our margins, well, being that our margins were extremely poor in the dance industry, um, Karen started the production side and we started manufacturing our own label. And I think being dancers, the design side from Linda, um, she knew what dancers wanted. We knew what they wanted. And then we had actual other wholesalers, actual stores, contact us to see if they could actually buy our brand, and that's how it started. And mm-hmm. it 33, 33,
1: years later, we're still going. Yeah. And if I recall, you were putting in place the largest dance store in Australia when you were yes, in the program. We have. Correct. Correct. And was doing very well. Yes. And I'm just so proud of the progress, not only that you've made, but how you've continued to sail since you left the program and continue to implement the things that we're going to talk about. So I'll cycle over to the other side of the world here, other side of the continent anyway. So Alison, you got into Pump and Seals, an unlikely place for a woman to get into, right?
3: Absolutely. So um, my husband and our business partner and I all actually worked um, in a business together in the 1990s um and at the end of in 1999 um we had the opportunity to actually buy the business and at that stage it had shrunk to having only four staff that we took on um and i started off in a part-time role as a cfo with a nine month old and a two and a half year old um and yeah we did quite well for a long time we were happy to get 10 percent growth each year and and being in the resources sector in WA is not a bad place to be. So we had year on year growth for a very long time until the resource downturn. And um, yeah, so in 2016, we decided that um, we need to split Gavin's role, who was MD, um, because he was just taking on too much. And we felt his skills were really in the sales area um, or we needed his skills in the sale area. So we decided we'd hire a general manager And then someone suggested, well, maybe Alison could do it. So um, I took it on reluctantly. um, But I've actually, after a few challenges at the start, um, loved it immensely.
1: Mm, I think you're a natural. And and again, it's easy to understand dancewear and dance shoes and and, uh, clothing. But what is it, again, that you do?
3: So we sell pumps. And fluid sealing products, which are engineering maintenance products, to mines and refineries in WA. Big mm-hmm. pumps, not just your average bore pump. We're talking about you know twenty to thirty thousand dollar pumps, and we service yeah. them as well.
1: Okay, good. All right. So we have um, dancing, and we have uh, manufacturing. But you also took on manufacturing as well, um, and then our retailing. The and then other people want what you're developing because you you are the dancers. You know what dancers want. So so if we talk about um, staying focused on customers and delivering what customers need, want, and value, Gail, that was pretty easy in a way because you kind of represented your own customer, right? You weren't the dancers. But how did you right. decide of the things we could make, we should make, and which ones were going to be the ones that would sell and that people would want to buy? Because obviously if you don't have customers and revenue, you don't have a company. So how did you make those choices in the early days? Well, I think being well, being dancers, we're also
2: dance teachers and also we were mums. So we had each sector of our business basically covered. So we knew what the parent wanted, we knew what the dancer wanted and we knew what the teacher wanted. Um, so we were lucky in that respect because we know our industry. So there's key lines which we had to start with, like the basic leotard, the basic wrap, the basic skirt. So they're the lines that we started off with firstly, and then the range just kept growing. I think actually when we first started, we only had like, I think it was like 30 skus, and now we're up to 22,000 skus. So (laughs) we definitely have grown on those those initial lines,
1: yeah. Right, but staying both focused on what the customer wanted, and having a sixth sense about what they wanted and needed and valued because you were one in a way, and you were one. So you could pick up the subtle cues and you could understand that they wanted more of this or less of this or different colors or whatever the trends were in that time. So that right. in a way is a little easier than, than Allison would have had. How did you manage to do that? Because you're not exactly in the business of pumping yourselves. Right. Um, well,
3: our business model is actually based on um, a sales team that actually has face-to-face um, contact with our customers. So they're on site walking through Mines refineries, actually meeting people on the ground, looking for applications, talking to them. So um, they're very clear on what their customers need and sometimes they're more clear on what their customers need than what their customers are. So, um, and it's just showing them why they need what we can do for them.
1: One of the things we talk about is, what is it that customers value? You know, I may need a car, I could buy a Ford Fiesta for 25,000 or a Tesla for 125,000. So there's something or other that I value that I'm willing to pay more for, $100,000 more for. So when you think about what is it about what you deliver that customers value and are therefore willing to pay more for, is it the variety or is it the comfort of the clothes or is it the price or, is it the luxury part of the, the, the line that you have, Gail? What is, how would you say customer? What is it that customers really value about what you have? Our
2: quality, without a doubt. So it's our, our quality foremost and our fit. So um, we, we again, knowing our industry, um, back when we started, the quality of our competitors was very poor. So we're quite innovative in always researching fabrics and technologies within that that actually cater for the dancer. And we've progressed with that all the way through our company. So it's very important to understand your customer and their needs, obviously. And knowing that, you know, a dancer moves, a dancer sweats, they're an athlete. We've always very closely watched the trends and the technology that the fabric industry has provided. So Karen works very, very closely with fabric mills to design fabrics that suit our dancer. And then, as new technologies arise, then we actually implement those new fabrics within our range. So we've always been forefront in and the leaders in new fabric development within our industry. And then the competitors just tend to follow a few years, a few years later. So, um, so yeah, so it's definitely quality
1: and design. And and Alison, you probably are picking this up by by the walking around, looking and listening to the customer salespeople do.
3: Would that be fair? Yes, but we also made a very key decision at the start that the product lines that we stocked would only be the um, top end. We used to say the Coca-Cola brand um, items so that we were selling on value rather than, um, and reliability rather on price. So that's always been our sort of litmus test for what product lines we will take on. Um, We don't want to compete at the lower end on um, price for consumables. We want to sell something that, um, you know, will last and um, save money in the longer term. Mm -hmm.
1: So both of those issues that we're going to be understanding what the customer needs and delivering what they value, both of those are part of the strategy that you develop then for your company and part of the differentiator. And so when we talk about, what are the critical things that you've done to enable you to be more successful than the competitors? Is it the strategy that you have? Is the fact that you've put in place a plan so everybody in the company knows where we're going and how we're going to get there? And have, is it that you continue to do systems thinking that is understanding a problem here it's going to be reflected over here and we can't just solve the problem here without understanding the implications on the rest of the company? Um, And and then the whole issue of risk assessment, which is coming to the fore, certainly given that we've gone through bushfires and COVID in one year, those are risks that nobody really thought about and had prepared for. So the, the plan enables you to go through that and to solidify your strategy. Talk a little bit about how you've used planning and how you've thought ahead and thought about the risks and prepared the company for the risks that might be coming or or that you're experiencing right now, Alison. You want to start on that one?
3: Um, yeah. Well, I think it's all of the above. Um, you know, we've had to we've had to make hard decisions. We put together our, our management team, sort of, I guess, about ten years ago. We meet monthly, um, more often if needed, um, to assess what's happening in the market, how our company's performing against that. Um, we had a plan in place. Of what we wanted to achieve but we've had to adapt so um, an example of that was when we had the resources downturn that we actually looked at what our competitors were doing and we saw that they were cutting back on staff um, and we saw they were cutting costs so we made a conscious decision well number one we actually saw it as an opportunity that there were some good people in the market which um, had been really hard to find previously especially tradespeople in western australia um, And there were some people who hadn't been performing um, as well as we would have liked at the time. So we very nicely suggested that they move on to try something else um, and got the best people that we could in-house. But we also made a conscious decision and we accessed business grants and the ANZ provided us with a loan um, to invest in our company in that time because we knew when things were gonna turn around that that we wanted to be positioned for growth at that point and our customers weren't. So um, we bought a new building, we invested in um, better equipment for the workshop, so. And then when things did turn around, not only were we in the building three times the size, within a year we actually rented the building next door to that because we were well positioned, but that was that was strategy on our behalf, not just luck.
1: That's right. and And taking advantage of downtime, to get ready and prepare because you do believe the company can grow into the good times. Um, That's another data that we've noticed from companies throughout our programs who've gone through that they've used this time. I mean, some companies folded up shop. Some companies go like, oh, I can't wait. And and I'm just gonna wait until hopefully government extends JobKeeper. But most of the companies in our program said, wow, let's use this time to put in better systems weed the garden, make sure we have the right people in place, um, make sure that we have uh, are looking ahead in our plan, maybe we switch from year three, put that to year one, stuff we were going to do this year, maybe we should delay, maybe we shouldn't be going to the end right now until they get that sorted out. And so they they because they've had a plan and a strategy, they've been able to stay on strategy, but simply move yeah. pieces on the chessboard, so to speak. So that worked for you. Has that worked also for you, Gail, as well? Yes, it does. Like what you said is, is spot on. The difference,
2: I suppose, where we come into it is the dancing industry took a massive hit, especially during COVID. So all our normal planning, systems, thinking is all based around our knowledge. We've been in business for a long time. It's based around a planning cycles. We, we know all that. Well, obviously COVID hit and we don't know, we clearly did not know what that was going to bring. So our whole planning had to change. So we, we did everything based on worst case scenario because dancers were not dancing. so we made sure all our systems were in place to move forward as limited in expense wise and operational wise most efficient. So we moved forward with less expenses. We tried to downscale everything and just keep everything as tight as possible, watching the numbers very, very carefully. Then on the flip side of that, however, there's always an opportunity. So our planning changed to, okay, well, what is the opportunities? Karen went to the US in um, January, just before COVID hit. So we were very scared <laughs> um, that we would lose that traction that she built with his agent over there. So Karen concentrated um, very much with him and we took that time to work with our agent to understand the US market better, to look at, you know, and review all their product lines, what are their key lines, and we also engaged eight more reps and used that time to train them, to get them familiar with our brand. So then moving forward, they had all that foundation. So we looked at new markets, being that the Australian market was stopped. Dancers, had, we stopped. Um, so it really was a massive difference in our system thinking, but all based around, again, a plan of, okay, well, where else can we look? What else can we do? What else can we use this time for? And being quiet also up, up and opened that opportunity to do all the background projects that so we were sitting on, train our team so they could move forward with more skills. And yeah, so all our planning just, yeah, normal planning went out the window. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But because you knew about what needed to be included in the plan, and of course, like like you, we strengthened our systems as well. It took time out to go back and look at how what are the touch points for customers and what could we do better. We like you, you you went to video, right? You were teaching some classes on video, is that right? If I recall,
2: yeah, yeah, we did. We offered because dancers couldn't dance, you know, they were dancing at home, so we used our Facebook and our media to um, have our team of dancers, so we used our team to do dance routines and they were free and it just engaged that audience and kept our brand in the forefront of their mind. So they basically wouldn't forget about us um, and then sort of move forward with that, yeah.
1: Mm. So we immediately went to video as well and we started delivering things on Zoom enabled clinics and so forth. So we, <coughs> excuse me, were forced to a, a shift which has turned out to be a great extension of our programs. So are you keeping the the dance classes going? The or have you stopped that now that people can now go back and take their classes in a regular dance yeah. studio?
2: Yeah, we, we, we stopped that. It was basically a, a service, I suppose, just to keep them dancing because, again, we've got to be mindful of the dance teacher. So if the dance teachers, you know, that you can go back in the studio now, of course, we don't want to offer free classes because then it's a conflict um, with mm-hmm. that. The thing that we have kept, though, is, um, for example, with the US, so Karen is regularly speaking to the reps, um, you know, via Zoom and things like that because obviously she can't go over there. So yeah, so we have, have adapted. Also, our sales rep is using more Zoom meetings rather than being on-site and in-store with um, our
1: wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a little bit also about um, you have the large retail store. Uh, how much has your business shifted to online? Did that shift a lot during... Uh, the downturn, or did people just stop buying, period? No, our online platform did increase.
2: Um, I think it, was, it actually grew by th- just over 30%, which was interesting thought- being that dancers weren't dancing. So we didn't actually expect that growth. We thought, oh, people aren't dancing, then why are they going to be buying? Their buying pattern did change. It went to more um, sale lines. I think they wanted to buy. They just wanted to buy something. So they were picking up you know, something that was on sale probably make them feel good and then the dancers you know would dance at home with their new little outfit um so there definitely was a swing we still found that found that our retail stores are actually opened that they're actually down by about still about 18 percent. so the online is still getting more traction which is quite interesting mm-hmm. especially being in dance because it's they're fitted garments so it's like selling swimwear can be quite difficult mm-hmm. to work out your
1: size um but
2: yeah going so yes yeah, still got that traction there.
1: Yep. So that's been part of the little um, surprise package of COVID I guess which is that it's um, there have been expansions in some parts of the business that if you weren't ready or keeping track of uh, you might think it's temporary but in fact it may be a permanent opportunity to think what else you could do in terms of the online. Yep. Allison, a little harder to do that with pumps I suspect right? Did you sell many of those online or did
3: you? No, we we can't sell pumps online because we have to do pump curves and calculations and that for every individual application. Um, And whilst we braced ourselves for the hit with COVID, um, we didn't realize that mining was an essential service and that kept going. And the iron ore price actually went up. So surprisingly, um, not... I won't say we did better during COVID, but we didn't suffer what we thought we would. And there were some other benefits in that some of the bigger mining companies, um, our biggest customer went from paying us 90 days to paying us in seven days as uh what they were offering to smaller businesses. So that was a real bonus. So cash flow actually improved throughout COVID.
1: Well, that's definitely a bonus for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, that's good. Well, speaking of being able to measure things, uh, if we talk about and measures and how important it is to understand your numbers, I just finished the third session of that course that we were offering this week. We had people who came in from Sydney and Adelaide and uh, and the Hills. And, and so we were really talking about understanding all the different financial sheets, the cash flow, profit and loss, uh, balance sheet, um, and certainly having your budget and where you are this year compared to last year and so forth, were you all over that budget even more so, Gail? I mean, that's your background anyway, right? But during COVID, were you even more attentive or um, were you just same old kind of business as usual during this the, the slowdown?
2: No, definitely not same old business as usual. So we do detailed analysis of all our reports every quarter. Um, which is pretty standard, including inventory reports. But that all got ramped up, basically. So I had a cash flow going based on worst case scenarios, which we reviewed weekly and adjusted accordingly. Um, I had a weekly profit loss going. I had a detailed tracking of our deferrals, grants and waivers. So we, we, knew, we knew at any point in time where we, where we were at also monitoring our balance sheet, so looking at our receivables and also our liabilities because the liabilities increased. We owed more in, you know, we owed more rent, deferrals, payroll tax, things like that. So I found it very, very important to keep a very tight rein on all of that so I knew at any point in time where we stood as a company. And I think we needed to do, well, we did need to do that, especially being in dance. Because was dance going to go back? When was it going to go back? Many dance teachers and dance schools actually closed during COVID. It just got all too hard. Um, so we had all these all this adversary being in this industry. So watching the numbers was paramount. It, it, we watched them
1: very, very closely. Great. So watching them is one thing. What did you do about when you saw some trends? What did you
2: yeah, do so then? When, yeah, so exactly, because then the numbers speak. Um, being that we did the cash flow on worst case scenario and I wasn't expecting the, the growth in the online platform. So our cash flow position was actually better than what we thought. So we are lucky in the sense that um, our reviewing was a positive review on each of those and analysing everything rather than going negative. Also, securing um, the US, that played a massive, massive role in our um, cash flow position. That did a lot better. It grew over just over 400% during COVID. So Mm. that kept us afloat. So securing another market um, definitely helped our position rather than relying locally
1: when no one was dancing. Mm. Right. So that's pretty phenomenal growth in a brand new market. That yeah, we're very, very pleased,
2: <laughs> which again, Absolutely. I did not factor that into our cash flow. Yes, <laughs> yes.
1: So once you have that money, then um, I noticed that you can either, you know, keep it in reserves for that rainy day or people can take it out as dividends or people can reinvest it immediately in more staff, more inventory. In other words, reinvest immediately in, in company growth that year. So which of those choices did you make? We're playing the cautious game. I
2: like the, the money sitting in the bank. It's, it's looking quite healthy at the moment. Very pleased with that. So we're, we, aren't, we are not touching it at the moment. Again, just to um, because of the volatility within our industry, we need some more patterns. We need to see what are our retail stores doing. Um, quiet was an, uh, April was a very, very quiet month for us. Is it going to continue like that? You know, we're now into term two in Victoria. So are the numbers for dance schools going to increase this term, being that term one was a very short term? There's so many um, unknowns at the moment. We are definitely keeping our little nest egg there <laughs> and yes. still keeping everything mm-hmm. tight. We're not reinvesting in any stock, just replenishing normally, but we're not bringing in any more new new lines. We're just sitting tight and let, see what the next pattern is going to show us.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense for right now, which is uh, to make sure that you keep the excess profitability there, that you have it in case, you know, We I know one other company that said, I'm manufacturing as quickly as I can. I'm shipping as fast as I can. I'm putting on a second line and I'm putting all that money in reserves because I'm trying to have a healthy balance sheet because I don't know what's going to happen. We're we're in a place where we still don't know. We haven't quite settled down yet to what the calibration is. I know we all think we're coming out of this faster and we're better off economically than people predicted we would be as of this moment, but it, we still can't go gung-ho and take all the money and you know go, go buy a, another beach house. <laughs> so good. <laughs> well and prudently and thinking about what the business needs in order to stay healthy so, Allison, as you were going through mostly um, the GFC, because you're you're now, or the mining downturn, I guess it would be, because since you're not, you're no longer there, you've sold the company. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, you're not in the day-to-day operations of what's going on in the seal at the moment. But as you look back, what were some of the things that you did in terms of measuring, metrics, and managing financials? Because you, like uh, Gail, have a very strong financial background.
3: Yes, Uh, we're very careful with getting money in and our cash flow. Uh, So we monitored our data days very closely and we've always managed those very carefully. Uh, Having big mining companies as clients can be beneficial in that regard, that you don't have many bad debts, but um, you also have, you're at their whim. And like I said, our key customer took us out to 90 days. So managing that's always been an issue. We're always watching our inventory to make sure that we don't have too much in stock but to make sure we have enough to manage customer demands and um, during COVID we actually had to stock more because freight was obviously an issue so getting stuff in time meant that we had to actually buy buy more upfront and actually have it in stock so we could meet customer demand. We've always looked at our order processes but I also monitor things like our workshop profit, profitability, sorry, my words are falling over, um, returns and warranty claims, one-time delivery performance, and yeah, to make sure that we can actually deliver on the things that we're committing to.
1: Right. So that's a very good set of, of uh, measures in terms of both both success measures for the company as well as measures that you can service the customers as we've talked about. So planning, systems, measures, those are all sort of system issues about the organization. Let's shift over and talk about the people issues because of course everybody, unless you have a bunch of robots who can manage and manufacture everything, a lot of what we do in our success depends on the people that we hire and the people that we retain. And so I want to talk a little bit about what you put in place to do that. So we talk a lot about people getting the right people on the bus, in the right seats on the bus, making sure they all understand where the bus is going and that they wanna go there. That's a Jim Collins from Built to Last analogy. And so we talked about that as well and making sure that they can do the functional responsibilities, but that they match your values. So when COVID hit, uh, it was an opportunity to take another look at who we had and who we needed to stay on the bus, given either we had to shrink to viability or or maybe we were going to grow into the new opportunity that COVID provided. So tell us a little bit about what you look for in the people who come work for you, and then when COVID hit, how that impacted what you did in terms of the people who were working with you. I want to start with us, Gail, here?
2: We used it as an opportunity to um, move forward with actively engaged employees. Um, So, we did have conversations with um, team members who weren't portraying our values and kindly suggested that they moved on and found something that they would be happy in. Um, Being that the climate that we were in, we made it quite positive that you don't want to be in a work environment that you're not happy with. So, use this opportunity to go work it out for yourself, basically. Um, So we look for our biggest, because I actually do the interviewing process because I have a HR hat as well. Um, I look for people who have our core values. They've got to have our core values. Sometimes they may not have the education that we require or the experience. But for me, if they've got our core values, then we can move forward with them. and makes them easier to on-teach, they're engaged and they, they care about the company. They don't care about they've just got a job. So um, in my interviewing process, I am very careful with who we choose based around our core values. They've got to represent, they've got to be engaged with our company. That's what I look mm. for.
1: And because everybody who's out there listening may not understand what core values are, can you share some of yours with us and what Certainly. kind of behaviour would – yeah. Yep. Um, well, the first one, I suppose,
2: during COVID, is customer-centric, meaning that our customers are the number one thing in our company. Without a customer, we don't have a business. So that's on um, – all our retail teams know that, our wholesale teams know that, customer service know that, marketing knows that. We all know that our number one thing is our customers. So we're customer centric. Another one we have is we are a team. We are about a community here. We are about um, sharing ideas. We get in, we help someone just because, you know, that's not my job or that's not your job. That's not how we look at our company. We all get in, do what needs to be done. We are a team. We also have balance, um, making sure our, you know, we have very committed, um, quite a few very committed employees who would work 50, 60 hours a week. So we've put into um, our core values balance because it's important for them to have a life outside of work. And that's why that balance that's why balance became part of our core values. Um, integrity. You've got to have integrity. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you can't do it, then be honest and say why you can't do it. So having that foundation makes you um, have that all commonality between each other and you all speak the same language. And that's why I think it's extremely important to have those core values. It's like a family. A family will have their values within that family. An organization must have their values so each employee knows what what, what our values are as a company. So they've got that direction.
1: As I I totally agree with you that values are absolutely part of the foundation on which you build the company, your mission, what your enduring purpose is, why you are in business, your why, your values, and then the vision. So that set of values would cut across a lot of different companies. It isn't only for dance companies. Allison, you probably have some of those values in common as well, and you're certainly radically different than a dance company, and yet those values would still apply, right?
3: absolutely we have a pumping term where you prime a pump and so our values went with the acronym primed which was people reliability innovation motivation energy and dedication so and we're very particular about who we hire and that they are a good fit with our values and very low tolerance for what i would call bad apples so at pump and seal we have a motto which is we find a way which means that the people we hire, we're looking for problem solvers and solution finders rather than people who just focus on the negatives. It's okay, this is tough, but what do we do to actually resolve this rather than throwing our hands up in the air and complaining about the situation?
1: Hmm. Boy, we talk about awesome people. We're looking for people who are not problem identifiers, but problem solvers. And so building yeah. that into the organization, I'm so pleased to hear that you've done that, because this is the, what do you think we should do? What are three possible solutions and which one do you recommend? This is part of the muscle of execution that you have built into your company that I'm, I'm perhaps it was there before you came to the program, but I'm so pleased to see that that, that is what the result of.
3: I think we so got better at communicating it.
1: Uh-huh. Sorry, Dana, I was gonna that's, say, we got better also- at
3: communicating it with the staff through the program, the values were there. Can I also just say that the hardest thing we had to do was actually let someone go who fit our values and who was a really liked member of our team. But we could see that the person actually didn't have the skills to take the business to the next level. So having all the values is one thing, but you also have to have the skills to match that. That's right.
1: That's really true. That's why we have the matrix, which is the performance, the functional performance and then the values along on the other side, because um, we have to get the work done. And if someone mm-hmm. has fit, perfect fit with the values but cannot do the work, then that holds back the whole organization and that's not fair to everybody else. So making those hard calls. Yeah. And that was what I was going to cycle into here, which is, so how how have you assessed people's performance and what kind of feedback do you give people and enabling them to understand the problem have some resources, hopefully get better. Um, But if they don't, have that hard conversation. So Gail, you said that you had that conversation with some people who, was it that they just weren't performing or they didn't fit the values or both? Both, both. Uh Um, So yeah, we had, probably my
2: hardest one is we had a long-term employee um, who was coming up for close to 12 years, he's been with our company. And probably the last, especially during COVID, he became very disengaged with our company. And we we tried to work with him, we gave him performance improvement plans, we tried everything, and it just had to be that conversation. That look, you need to go and, you know, find something that you're happy with. You clearly, we're not the right fit for you. Um, You know, things have obviously changed. Thank him for his value to date and move on, basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and as you say, that's that's part of the courage you have to have as the leader in the company, which is to sort of face up to something that's going on that's uh, in all the rest of the company. And although it's never easy to have the conversation and sometimes you wonder, well, was it me that I didn't give them enough professional development or I didn't give them opportunities or something or other that I could have done better? Maybe, but the fact is we are where we are at the moment and we have to deal with the issue and do what's best for the organization and for the rest of the people who are working very hard and do fit the values. So those are hard, hard choices, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: On the other hand, you've got people who are performing really well. How have you encouraged them to perform at a higher level? What kind of feedback do you give them so that they know they are on the right track? We have, um, we have quarterly goal
2: reviews. So just informal, so every quarter we sit with um, every team member and they set their goals for that next quarter, what they would like to work on, and you give them some advice on what we feel that they need to work on. And that just gives us the opportunity to touch base with them and gives that line of communication where you're setting down these goals. And if they're not cutting the mustard, then you can focus on that. Say, so, okay, how about we concentrate on X, Y, Z, and then Hopefully they agree with you, and then you move forward with that, and then it's reviewed again at the end of that quarter. We also have um, annual performance evaluation, which again we get them to do a self evaluation, and then we do the evaluation. And it's a good comparison to see where they they think they're sitting, as opposed to where we sit. They sit. We sit. See, they're sitting. Sorry, my words are going stumbled, and it, it gives you. It again just opens that line of communication because if they don't match. Well, okay, why don't they match? Why do I think this and you think that? So you can just have those open and honest conversations about it. I think that's the key, is just letting them know where you think they're at. You can't hide behind the bush and fluff around. They've got to know where they stand and they've got to know if they're cutting the mustard or they're not cutting the mustard. It goes both ways. And doing those quarterly reviews, you can also reward and praise the employees who are doing well. So it goes it yes. Yeah, you cover both
1: bases by doing that. And I sometimes, because we're in the middle of doing those ourselves right now, I just did one this morning, two this morning, and a couple the other day, and and one of the things I end on which, what do you need from me? How can I enable you to do your job better? Better communication? Is it um, remembering to copy you on Certain emails are all the emails or is it um, texting you, you know, if I'm going to be late to meetings so you can alert people. What, what is it that you need from me to be able to do your job better? Because I think sometimes if we don't give people permission to tell us, they're really reluctant and there are some small tune-ups that we can do that really help them get better. Allison, did you have those kinds of conversations as well? Yes, we did, but less formal.
3: So I met with my management team because one of my one of my key goals when I first came into the role was to empower the leaders within our organisation to lead. So I met with each of them monthly for a half an hour to an hour to talk about what their goals were for the month, where they were heading and exactly that. What did they need in order to get to where they wanted to be? Was there stuff that we could do to help them? Did we need to provide them with additional training, additional resources? And that gave us an opportunity for informal feedback in that meeting, but I've always been really big on if someone does a good job, we tell them at the time, or if they do a bad job, that we actually have that conversation when it happens, rather than waiting for a meeting down the track. Um, And I'm very big on letting our team know how much we appreciate the efforts that they put in. They can just turn up to work and do a job, but when you go the extra mile, which our team all do, um, we're very big on acknowledging and appreciating that. So whether that's running them with Krispy Kreme donuts one day just to say thank you, or whether it's giving someone a gift voucher because they did an awesome job and they lived out the values of the company. We really wanted to reward and acknowledge good performance and um, living up to the, the values.
1: I think that's so important. I can remember back when I was working at the Kaufman Foundation and I got a little um, note, thank you so much for filling in for Joe and giving the speech. Um, I really appreciate you doing that because his wife had gotten sick and he couldn't do that. Or it was the, it's your anniversary and we just want to tell you how pleased you are that you're working with us and helping us achieve our mission because without people like you, We wouldn't be able to do the things that we do. And I took that away in my briefcase. And I would get that out and read that when my flight had been delayed at midnight. And go like, yeah, this is why I do, because people appreciate this. And it doesn't take a lot. No, four words. Good job. Well done. That's just Mm -hmm. amazing. In fact, a friend of mine had written a book, A Thousand and One Things You Can Do, how you can show people that you appreciate what they've done. I think my favorite story in the whole thing was the fellow in early stages in the company, the fellow had gotten mine. He'd gotten the best sale they'd ever gotten. And, and the CEO had, the owner had nothing except his lunch bag. And he reached in and he pulled out a banana. He goes like, you get the yellow banana award. And that became institutionalized in the company for, you know, high performance. And It was, it was really fun to think all those little things that you can do that become part of the ethos of the company. Well, you, you talked about communication and communication as clearly so important, but you've also mentioned delegation. So before we end, I want to have a little conversation with you, sharing with people how you have managed to delegate, because that's been an important part of your success. I've noticed as I've watched over you be successful. Um, And for those of you out there who don't understand delegation, it's not yes or no. There are shades of gray. There's five levels of delegation. And as you grow, you must delegate, because when you start, all the monkeys are on your back. And your job is to get your employee to the place where you can put the monkey on their back. And when they come to you and say, Jana, what should I do about X? And you tell them, the monkey jumps right back on your back again. So the trick is making sure that those monkeys stay on people's backs. And that, of course, there are more monkeys as you grow larger, larger strategy, more customers, new products, and so forth. But you have to have room to be able to grow into your role as the company grows. So talk a little bit about how you walk through those levels of delegation with people and how you felt comfortable delegating. You wanna start us out, Gabe? Is that me?
2: Sorry, Jenna, I couldn't hear you. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. No, yes, that's all right. Uh, yes. um, well, I'll just lay it out there. Delegation is probably the biggest thing that all of us CEO's struggle with. It took us a long time to Learn the art of delegation. It was in the um, ANZ growth program where we realised that, oh, okay, we can't keep holding these reins in really tight because we don't have the opportunity to grow the business. We are basically stuck at the stage that we couldn't keep growing because we didn't learn the art of delegation. Don't want to use the word control freaks, but we kind of were that we liked that. <laughs> that way of actually controlling everything we knew that it'd get done properly we knew that would get done the way we liked it to get done and all those other things that come al- along with not delegating but it does hold you back you cannot grow the company without delegating so slowly we we started to delegate and then realized we just had to rip the band-aid off we just had to do it and I think the probably the biggest thing that I realized it actually um, empowers the people who under us who were actually delegating to so they got stuck they they were stuck from us we made them stuck in their position because we wouldn't hand down anything so they couldn't have their career progression that they were hoping for because of us so we were actually in their way and it did take us a while to learn that so um yeah so rip the band aid off just do it and using those five levels of delegation we very much just say, you know, how would you do that? This is what, you know, you need to do. How would you do it? Get them to keep asking the questions to us and then letting go of those reins. And if they do make a mistake, well, that's okay. And then just discuss about the mistake because if they're, right, they're the right person, they're going to just fly with that added responsibility. And that's what we've learned and it did take us a long time to learn it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the issue for many of us is because it is our company, we want it to go right and we don't, we don't want the employees to have made the mistake. And so if we make the decision, then we can keep them from making mistakes. That's one thing. The second is on the employee side, do not it's your company, and they don't want to make a mistake. And so if you tell them what to do, then I'm sure I'm doing what you tell me. And so if it just turns out it's not my, my problem, it's not my fault, because I'm just doing what you told me to do. So there's vectors on both sides which are pushing you away from delegation. And it's really important that you you do it. And Alison, it sounds like it came reasonably naturally to you early on, before the program even.
3: Yeah, it took me a while to learn it, Jenna, that especially when I was in the finance role, to let go of that was a hard thing. But once I did, I realized the freedom that it gave me. And I was the same, um, when I started in the GM role, like I said, I wanted to empower the leaders, but I realized in doing that, that it actually freed me up to become the chief coach in the business and to actually be cheering people on and helping them with what they needed as well as my other roles. But we had a great example of someone in the business who just wouldn't delegate to his team, but he became a bottleneck to the company because everything had to go through. And he played the role of gatekeeper because he didn't trust anyone. And it, it took us a really long time to work with him in how to delegate and have faith in his team. But what he didn't realise was that by acting as a gatekeeper, it actually undermined his team and showed a lack of faith in his team. So I think that everyone wants to do a great job. And everyone, if if you're in a job that you want, you're in for the long term, you want to be given more responsibility. You want to be able to prove yourself. So if the people in that upper levels are holding on to things and you're actually denying other people opportunities. And we were very guilty of that when people would go on vacation and there was a gap to be filled, myself and Gavin would jump in and actually do that person's role. And then we realized we actually had to hand the responsibility down and train people up in the business as opposed to the people who knew the stuff because they've done it previously coming back down to do those things. Um, so yeah I was very, very big on empowering people and handing that off so that they got more job satisfaction and the business as a whole wasn't held back.
1: So those levels of delegation are first figuring out what is the problem that we need to solve? What are some possible solutions and which one do you recommend? If we implement that, what's the impact on the rest of the organization? Can you actually go off and execute on that? And then finally, after you see that they can and they understand what you want from them and you understand what they can do, then you can move them to level five, which is they're doing the job and their responsibility is to report back any exceptions. Something's happening that neither you or I expected. It's an exception to what we expected. So it's exception reporting. And and if you can get your, especially your exec team to that level, and they begin delegating down to people underneath them, that really does give you the lift to be able to grow and I can see that you both learned that. Mm. So, Laura, are you going to be closing for us? I can't believe how quick it has gone, but we are it's very by,
0: Absolutely flying by.
1: Oh. Isn't that amazing? This, this, this.
0: Jana. Mm-hmm. Is there any further points you'd like to make just before I close this out?
1: I guess I would ask each of them just what their one word of advice would be to anybody who's listening in, in terms of the five key skills that a CEO needs to master. Mine would be never give up.
2: Be willing to pivot, adapt, and always looking at the bigger picture. Look in the rearview mirror, see what you've done, what worked, what didn't work, and then move forward with that and don't get caught up in the negativity or the problems. You've got to look at the solutions.
3: That would be my
1: takeaway. Awesome.
3: And mine would be empower your people. Um, Communicate with them, make sure everyone's on the same page, but get everyone pulling in the same direction. And um, yeah, be prepared to go through those stages of delegation with them and you'll have a happy team.
1: Happy team and successful company from the looks of it. Yeah. Thank you so much. What an amazing hour this has been. Thank you for sharing your tips and describing your journey and understanding what these key skills are and being able to develop them both with you and your your team, your co-CEO team, as well as your exec team. And thank you as well, Allison, talking about your experiences with your former team. Uh, Awesome. Okay, Laura, that's our close. Up to you.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Janet, Gail, and Alison. And just before we wrap up, I'd just like to call out a few things that I found really interesting and that I think are really important to highlight as some key takeaways from this discussion. And I mean, the number one thing for me is that I'm absolutely blown away by the quality of business women we heard from today. Knowledgeable, confident, intelligent women who have built and grown outstanding and highly successful businesses. So congratulations. Goodness me, Gail, 21 years old and having the foresight to start your own business in the industry you are passionate about. I'm so inspired by this and the way you've grown your business over time. And Alison, deciding to take on a business with a nine-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old and and growing that business 10% year on year. I mean, wow bravely taking on the GM role in the business even when you weren't certain and achieving everything that you have in that role right through to the sales of business is absolutely remarkable. Mm -hmm. The importance of keeping everyone focused on the customer is something I think is very relevant no matter what type of business you run. Ensuring that everyone in your business understands what your customers really need, want, and value is so important. But this understanding often gets diluted and it can also change and shift over time. And both Gail and Alison showed they really took the time to understand what the customer valued. In Gail's case, as both a dance teacher and a mum, she was the target market for her business and made a conscious effort to focus on quality and fit as she understood that this was what the market desired. And for Alison, knowing that the right person to understand the customer and what they wanted was the sales rep who was out on the road, in the mines, talking, looking and listening and getting first-hand experience of what those customers needed and wanted. And in short as well, that they would only supply those top-end items, again, ensuring they had quality and reliability of products. Understanding your numbers is another one I also think is critical. As a banker, I see highly successful business owners struggle with the basics. Increasing your own knowledge in this area is so important, no matter what stage your business is in or your goals are. And weekly reviews of that worst-case scenario cash flow in Gail's business was so crucial. in the end, even though during COVID cash flow actually improved, they were able to assess on the go and they were so close to the information and they've made a conscious decision to hold steady, keep expenses low and save cash. And they're going to do that to ride out any future volatility in their industry and that is so, so important. And then watching inventory was close really closely was something that was really crucial to Allison's business, which meant during COVID, they needed to buy more stock up front and have the cash flow to support this. Alison also oversaw some of the seemingly smaller and highly detailed metrics. You know, monitoring workshop profitability and those other key performance outcomes ensured they could continue supplying their customers. And my last point and something I really love to hear from Gail was that they used COVID as an opportunity to move forward with actively engaged employees who share the business's core values. And can I just say that this is so universal and this is something that as a leader of teams, I think is the number one most important factor in hiring and managing a team. And Alison having that very low tolerance for the bad apples and looking for solution-focused people, the problem solvers, was no doubt key to their success. So on behalf of ANZ, I'd like to thank Jana, Gail, and Alison, three phenomenal and inspiring women for their time and for sharing their insights and expertise with us today. For more information about the ANZ Business Growth Program, please visit our website, www.anz.com.au forward slash business growth. There are actually a number of free tools and resources available there to help you plan your next move. Thank you all and best of luck to all of you in your business growth journey.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.